Hey, welcome to How to Write a Novel. So it seems like to uh, get a little time away from people, to blab to myself in Tokyo, seems like a good method is to go to shrines. I was at this place, the Meiji Shrine by Yoyogi Park. That's the park I was at last episode that I didn't know the name of. Pretty busy place, pretty touristy, but uh, even there, it's like if you just go kind of behind the shrine and go down one of the sort of access roads, there weren't that many people. So I was like, uh, huh, I think this could be the trick. So today, just uh, I was by Sunshine City, the big uh, mall near Ikebukuro Station. And it was a little windy and overcast, so I saw a subway entrance and went in, but it was some weird subway line that I don't know what it is, and uh, it took me somewhere that I, I didn't know where I was. <laughs> and when I came back up above ground, again, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where I am. I'm under some overpass. I don't know what's happening. And there was a sign that said, hey, uh, major subway this way, or another shrine 500 meters the other way. I forget what it's called. It starts with a G. But I was like, fuck it, let's go check that out. Let's go see what's going on with the shrine. So I'm there right now, and uh, it's smaller, but it's pretty nice, and uh, yeah, there's fucking nobody here. It's a Monday afternoon, just wandering around, and uh, it is really cool, like all these shrine areas. They really do feel super traditional. It's just cool. It's like I got some kind of sense of this just from Japanese video games I played as a kid. Alex Kid games and Spellcaster. Anything on Sega Master System, basically, because they didn't really go out of their way to localize stuff that much. So, uh, you know, I'd just be playing these games where the dude's eating a rice ball and onigiri, and I didn't know what the heck that was for years. And yeah, all these shrines and temples and stuff, they just, uh, I don't know, that's what's kind of neat about coming here is I didn't know what it would be like when it was all put together because I've just seen pieces, you know, like a, a panel from a comic book or just a scene in an anime or, or even YouTube videos of people in Japan. All this stuff is contained, you know, it's like here's what Japan looks like in a box, <laughs> in a little square. So the individual pieces I've seen before, I've seen all this shrine type stuff before, for instance, but I've never seen it just around me, you know, just flowing all around. I never knew what it would be like when it's all connected. And with that sense of like, I know where this is, I know how close it is to the city, I know what the city looks like over there. I'm aware of how many <laughs> drink machines there are everywhere. It's crazy, there's so many. That's hands down, I think, the weirdest thing is just I knew there were drink machines, but there's so many. It's like in SimCity or something. If somebody just selected drink machine and just held down the mouse button and just started dragging the mouse all over, and it's like, just let's just squeeze them in anywhere. Anywhere that this game will allow me to squeeze one in, just squeeze it in. <laughs> That's how it feels. There's too many, way too many. But yeah, pretty cool so far. So far, I uh, enjoy Japan. I got some thoughts. Maybe I'll get to them this episode. Maybe I'll save those. Because today, I still want to talk about Moscow and the Moscow airport. I did a podcast from the airport last episode. And it was like kind of premature. You know, I was like, hey, this would be cool. Let me uh, capture this little moment. 
Plus, I just needed something to take my mind off of the fact that I was just so exhausted and worn out and sick, and I just needed to kill a few hours. So that podcast did the job, but there was a, a bunch more that happened after that. But this, uh, this fucking podcast is getting a little self-serving lately. It's like a fucking travel podcast. So I'm going to tie this in to ideas, because, you know, that's the big, uh, that comes up all the time. That's the classic writer question is, uh, where do you get your ideas? So I'm going to tie this more directly into how this little experience at the airport gave me ideas for a story. But at the same time, just travel blabbing. So like I said last time, uh, my flight got, uh, delayed when it left Amsterdam. So this transfer I was supposed to make in Moscow, there was no chance I wasn't going to make it. So they're like, hey, here you go, don't worry, we'll fucking uh, set you up with a little hotel thing, just come back at 10 o'clock tonight, we'll sort out the hotel. And I was already getting my first tastes of just how incredibly bad the bureaucracy is in, uh, in Russia. Just so slow, so unfriendly, zero customer service. Like, for instance, when uh, I went to Vancouver last time, my flight got overbooked, so there was no seat for me. And uh, I guess it makes sense that this is like, like I was surprised in a way how seriously they took it. But I guess if I was a business guy, I had places to be, people to see, fucking moves to make. I guess I'd be pretty pissed. As it was, I was just some guy flying to Vancouver for no reason. It was uh, when I was about to start this novel, in fact. It was right before I started working on this novel, and then, you know, a little bit after that, I started this podcast. But yeah, that's my whole plan. It's like, don't, don't worry, guys, I'm not in a hurry. I'm just on my way to the West Coast to write a novel, like the fucking spoiled son of privilege that I am. And uh, I like those times of enforced inactivity, having to hang out somewhere. I even like just doing laundry, you know, being at a laundromat. But yeah, so it's like, okay, I got to hang out for the afternoon at the airport. That's cool. I'll just do some work. And they also bumped me up to first class and gave me a $400, not even a flight credit, but just like $400, like cash money. Here's a check for $400, which was considerably more than the flight cost. <laughs> like the whole thing was just like, I was like, oh, this is great. I wish I could get bumped off my flight all the time. But that's, you know, that's what uh, customer service based culture will do. It's like, man, we fucked up. Sorry, please don't be mad. Please don't write angry reviews. Please don't tell your friends that we suck. Please come back next time. Here's money. Here's an upgrade. Here's an apology. Here's a food voucher. Here's everything. Please, here, 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 here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And from what I gathered in the Moscow airport, it's certainly, that's not a North American specific thing. There were all kinds of people from all kinds of different countries that got stranded because of this flight not connecting. Going to different places, coming from different places. And they all said, like, man, this would never happen. This has never happened anywhere else. Like, what the fuck is going on with how shitty this is? How much this Russian airline doesn't care? How much they're not looking after us? How much this all sucks? And we kind of pieced together as the evening went on. It's kind of like a lot of buck passing. It's like, you know, that idea that you can take an organization, take a business, take a company, take a country, take any group. And it's like shit runs downhill, you know, like the way the people at the top act is the way the organization acts. And unquestionably, the Russian mindset 
is this is not my fault. This is someone else's fault. <laughs> you know, we are our little group. We kind of became a little friend group throughout the day. And we managed to break through the Russian bullshit a little bit and just get some sense of what their thought process was. And their thought process was always passing the buck. The airline was like, hey, this isn't our fault. It's that fucking airport in Amsterdam that wouldn't give us flight clearance. It's the only reason that we're late. And then the people at the airport are like, this isn't our fault. It's that fucking airline for getting you guys here late. And then once we finally got to this hotel, the hotel people were like, well, this isn't our fault. This is the fucking airport dumping you people on us. And it was just so clear that everyone was resentful of the other person. Everyone thought they were having to shoulder a burden that wasn't their responsibility. And it's the exact opposite of, there's this guy, Jocko Willink. Super interesting. He's got his own podcast, but if you want a slightly shorter version, a shorter introduction to him, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's a former Navy SEAL guy. Now he does, like, corporate speaking and, like writes books about, you know, productivity and inspirational, get shit done, whatever. And his book is called Extreme Ownership because he said that was kind of his biggest takeaway. What he learned being the head of these Navy SEAL guys is the exact opposite of what these Russian people were doing is you take responsibility even though it's not your fault. Like if he's the leader of some platoon and something goes horribly wrong, there's just no point in passing the buck. There's no point in blaming someone else. So what he learned was most effective and what he started doing was he just took responsibility for everything. It's like, okay, this guy fucked up over here and this led to this and he's got this sense of the situation and once they get all the intel and like, how come that operation failed and what happened? And, and he knows why. He knows it's because this guy did this and this happened here and it's technically not his fault. But it is his fault in the sense that he is the one overseeing things. If that guy over there fucked up, it's because Jocko as the leader didn't clarify well enough how things were supposed to work or wasn't careful enough in putting the right people in the right places. In a sense, it is Jocko's fault. And whether it is or it isn't, in order to move on, it's just better to take responsibility. Say, yes, this is my fault. If you want to punish somebody, I'm the man, come punish me. But more often than not, he found that in those situations, if he deflected and he said, hey, it's not my fault, it's this guy's fault, that just makes people not trust him, not trust his whole organization. It makes them resentful of him. It makes them uncomfortable with the whole situation. They lose faith where when he just takes responsibility, then it allows everyone to move on. It's like, okay, that fucked up, that failed, that was something bad just happened. But that doesn't matter because time moves forward. That's over. What do we do now? What happens now? What's the next thing? And you feel so much more confident and so much more able to move forward if you trust the guy who's in charge of fixing the situation. And when the guy in charge says, yes, it's my fault, I take responsibility. This went wrong. It's my fault that it went wrong. And I'm going to make it work now. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make this situation never happen again. And he said there are some people who just cannot do it. They just can't. There's like some kind of... I don't use ego as a bad word, you know? I think ego is important. It's good to have a strong ego. But there is... 
you know, there are corrupted egos. They're like inflated egos. There are people that have an unstable ego that just can't do that. They just cannot take responsibility. All they can do is blame someone else. All they can do is pinpoint somewhere besides themselves where a problem happened and they refuse to take responsibility. And those people are just bad leaders and they never will be good leaders, you know? And that's basically, if I had to put it in a nutshell, that's the feeling I got from every fucking strata of that organization at the Russian airport. Nobody was taking responsibility. Nobody felt like anything was their own personal responsibility. Nothing was their fault. It was all someone else's fault. And no one was going to go above and beyond or out of their way in any way to make things better. But at the same time, the reason that was happening was also obviously because no one was empowered at all. Like North America, we are super, super individualistic, obviously, to the point where, like, even if you watch employees at McDonald's, the people who work the front of McDonald's do not have a specific job. They're just told to do whatever needs to be done. If you watch people at McDonald's, you'll see, like, they, they go check on fries, they go check on the to-go orders, they make drinks, they just buzz around and do whatever needs to be done. Because the old method, which was just you work the fries, you work the drinks, you work the counter, wasn't efficient. If there was a bottleneck, everybody would just stand around and do nothing. It's way more efficient and better overall to just empower the employees to just do what needs to be done. Or that dude Tim Ferriss, the, uh, the four-hour workweek book. He was talking about the uh, mail order, like, supplements and vitamins company he used to have. He felt like he had to do everything. Like, he was being more responsible if he handled everything himself. But he was just causing bottlenecks and he was making things not flow smoothly. So he let go of the reins a little and he, like, empowered his employees. It's like, if you have a problem, if someone has a customer service issue, if something weird is happening with shipping, anything, on any level... If you can fix it for, I can't remember if it was $200 or $400, but if you say $400, if you can fix it for under $400, just do it. Don't even email me. Don't call me. Just do it, and then we'll look at it later. Keep things moving. You know, use your own judgment. Fix it however you think is the best way to fix it. And he said just the, the amount that everything worked better was remarkable. So again, Russia was the exact opposite. Even just that couple of days I was in Russia. Unbelievable how clear it is. Like that classic Iron Curtain 1980s US versus the Soviet Union thing. The fundamental tenets of it are still true. North America is about individual empowerment. And Russia is very obviously not. Because I just... I, it's crazy how long it took. So we showed up at 10 o'clock. No one explained anything. Everything was crazy. Everything was weird. There were a few people like from India who couldn't speak English or Russian and they just got fucked. There's just no one to even care a little bit about what to do with those people. And everyone else like, it's just like, it's too boring to even recount. So I'll just burn through it. But it took from 10 p.m., to by the time we finally got to a hotel and got rooms, 
It was 3.30 in the morning. And we did not move far. Like, we moved probably 150 feet through the airport. And then once we got on these buses, the hotel literally next door to the airport. From the airport, there's the hotel. From the hotel, there's the airport. They're right next to each other. And it took hours because we would just slowly move, move to some security check. We had to get uh, Russian visas just to go to this hotel, even though the hotel was like a lockdown. The hotel, we could not leave. We could not, like, I don't know what would have happened if there was a goddamn fire, because, like, the front doors won't open. <laughs> we weren't allowed to leave our floor. But even just to get to that point, it was so slow. At every little stage, all this fucking physical paperwork would have to be checked and checked and checked. And it's like, I guess it's just that you can't get in trouble for saying no, you know? So everyone just wants to say no. No, 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 until every little meticulous thing has been checked over and over and over. And everyone has agreed, okay, this is definitely okay. Now we'll move to the next step. And that happened 18 times and took hours. And it was just unbelievable. It's like, how is this the 21st century? How is this the modern world? And uh, it really felt like an infantilized society, you know? Like these people... They just felt like little kids trying to act serious. No one could be friendly. No one could be personable, of course. Everyone was scared all the time. It's like they're scared that dad is going to yell at them. They're scared that something's going to go wrong. And even though this obviously happened fucking daily with that stupid airport, they all acted like it had never happened before. There was no protocol for it. There's no way to handle this. So fucking slow. And it's one thing if it's just like, hey, I'm just some dick who wanted a cheap flight. You know, okay, so I got fucked, whatever. There were plenty of douchebag travelers like me that, you know, how much sympathy can you have for us? But there were people with kids, and the kids are just like falling asleep and crying, and they're just stuck in this shitty fucking corner of the airport where there's just like empty liquor bottles, like it was an underpass. But this was in an airport behind a security check. How are there empty liquor bottles there? <laughs> what a shitty country. What a fucked up place. And the little kid thing is what really brought it into just sharp relief of like, these people can't do anything or won't do anything. You know, like, if anyone should have been expedited, it's the fucking families with kids. Just get them on this stupid fucking bus. Take them to the dumb airport in any other country. This whole thing would have taken, at worst, two hours. And instead it took like five and a half. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, again, I don't know. What, what else is there to say? It was fucking ridiculous. It was just bullshit. Thank Christ that, you know, as I was saying last time, I was having pretty bad diarrhea problems that day. Thank fucking God that they had more or less sorted out for the day at that point, because it just couldn't have been more of a nightmare. And I heard, I'd never thought to look at reviews or anything of the airport or the airline, because, like, why would I? I just never even thought of it. But somebody mentioned to me, like, yeah, I did see lots of bad reviews, and now I know why. Or, like, when people were first arriving at the airport, just, like, the desperation in their faces they're like 
sweaty faces and their wide eyes of like really rushing to get to their next flight which is not something you normally see in an airport because everything is it's modern it's the modern age everything moves pretty smooth everything's all pretty cool not at that airport <laughs> and, and this dude I was talking to he's like now I know why now I know why they had that look holy shit because you just get caught in fucking bureaucracy nightmareville so what was cool though is uh Physically, you know, I was in bad shape, but other than that, I was pretty much the prime candidate for this type of horrible, dumb bullshit to happen to. Because I wasn't in a hurry, you know, I had uh, 47 days or whatever booked here in uh, Tokyo at the cheapest possible hostel I could find. So who cares if I miss a day? Who gives a shit? And I just spent like a month in Amsterdam by myself, heading out here to Tokyo, where uh, I don't know anybody, <laughs> you know. Next month, my friend Brad's coming to visit for like a weekend, but a lot of, a lot of alone time, a lot of solo travel. So this whole thing was fun in that sense, because uh, it was like my chance to just kind of hang out. Like, it was like a weird sleepover, like we're all just stuck in like the worst summer camp in the world. And I kind of moved my way up the chain, where on... Uh, on the flight to Moscow, there was like an older Dutch guy who, uh, I don't remember his name because it was very Dutch name. <laughs> and we just kind of blabbed about whatever for a little bit. But at least, you know, but then he, lost, he missed his flight. He was going to Thailand, I think. So I saw him and I'm like, oh, hey, look, there's a guy I know. So that's cool. At least there's, there's some guy that I know. And uh, then at the 10 o'clock time when uh, we were first waiting for our hotels, little did we know we were still five or six hours away from what should have been a half-hour journey. I saw a dude who, he was right before me at the little counter where uh, they told me I was never going to catch my flight, where I saw the red-headed Russian girl I talked about last episode. But he was right in front of me. He was the guy who got told, hey, maybe you'll have to stay in a capsule or whatever in the hotel stuff. So I was like, oh, that's that guy. So he's also stranded. So we were just standing there, not knowing what the fuck was going on with the uh, hotel situation. So I just said, like, hey, I guess we learned our lesson about uh, transferring in Moscow, right? And we got blabbing. His name was Lawrence. He's also Dutch. Uh, I can't remember where he was going to. Maybe he was going to Thailand. Maybe everyone was going to Thailand. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, he was in his mid-twenties, he's a, a video game dude, like, how last episode I mentioned that game Papers, Please? He brought that up independently, he's like, you ever play that game, Papers, Please? Like, that's what this is like. And I was like, dude, nice, we will not have a hard time hanging out. We will not have a hard time finding things to talk about. Because that's kind of a deep cut. You have to be a pretty big video game nerd to know Papers, Please. So yeah, that was cool, we talked about fucking traveling around and Dutchness and the insanity of Moscow or whatever. And then as the day fucking dragged on in the endless lines and waiting and stand here, literally at one point they were like, go down these stairs. Oh, come back up the stairs. Okay, back down the stairs. And it's just like, oh my fucking God. But in the midst of all that, I met this dude who uh, I'm pretty sure he was from Australia. He lived in The Hague in uh, the Netherlands, but he wasn't Dutch, but he could speak Dutch. His girlfriend, his girlfriend was Dutch. Well, I'll get into this with his girlfriend in India and stuff. It's kind of cool. 
But that's the dude who saved the day for sure, where he just, uh, you know, he's like tanned, kind of cool. He was closer to my age. And he just seemed like the kind of guy who knows how to, he knows how to marshal a party. You know, this guy just knows how to connect people and how to fucking make a fun time happen. I found out later his name was Valentine. I eventually, I had to ask him, because that's the other weird thing. It's like you're just hanging out with people and talking to them, but nobody actually knows anybody's names or whatever. And maybe he doesn't give his name readily. He's a little, he's like, yeah, okay, my name is Valentine. I was like, for real? He's like, yeah, that's, that's my real name. But what was cool with that dude is that when we finally got to this hotel and we're still just stuck in the hotel and we're just lined up in the fucking hallway while they sort out rooms for people and all this fucking, again, checking every piece of paperwork and triplicate and quadruplicate and just over and over and just so fucking slow and awful. And at that point, I was just finally really just out of steam. I was just slumped against the wall. It's just like, oh my God, what the fuck? Like, I just got nothing left in me. What the fuck is this? Oh, that's how ridiculous it got too, actually. So last episode, I mentioned there were these people from Brazil ahead of me in line to get the hotel stuff sorted out, and it took for fucking ever. But it, this took so long that by the time we got there at 3.30 in the morning, they had to literally had to go back. They didn't even check into the room. They just were like immediately like, we got to get back on those buses and go back. Our flight's leaving pretty soon. Like, And that's something I think is a great little, uh, this is a great litmus test for how ridiculous something is, how ridiculous a society is, is as long as you can parody something, you know, as long as you can make a joke about something, then it's not irredeemable, you know? It's like, it's still somewhere within the realm of reality. But if something gets so ridiculous that you can't, you know, because I mean, a joke is just exaggerating something, right? For comedic effect. If you can't exaggerate something anymore, that's when you're at the end of the line, man. Something really needs to change. Like when your overnight hotel thing at the airport takes so long and is so slow and so inefficient that as soon as you get there, you have to go right back. That's the sketch. That's the joke. You know, you cannot get more ridiculous than that. It's not possible. That's the end of the line. It was so slow that as soon as you get there, you got to go back. Like I was thinking, like if I, if I wrote a sketch about a mall in the Netherlands that didn't have a bathroom. And the joke is that everyone's at the mall and they're like, where's the bathroom? How is there no bathroom? But that wouldn't be a joke. That would be factually accurate. That's how it really was <laughs> where I stayed. And like, how, how do you parody that? How do you take that a step further? You know, you just, you can't do it without going into straight absurdism of like you get to the mall and they inject more shit into you or something. Like you're at the end of the line. This can't get sillier. And when you hit that point, things gotta change. That's when there's no more like, oh, it's just my culture. Oh, it's just how it is. No, it's fucking stupid and it needs to change. Like I mentioned that to my friend Brad and he's like, yeah, where I met his place, uh, Fukuoka, you're not allowed to walk up and down escalators. They, they frown on that because you could fall and get hurt. You could bump someone. It's not safe or whatever. 
You're not allowed to walk on the escalators. You got to stand on the escalators. But at the same time, you have to stand on the left because it's two, you know, competing things of like, hey, if you're standing, stand on the left so people can get by. But no one needs to get by because you're not allowed to walk on the escalator, you know? <laughs> like, you've just hit maximum fucking, what's that called when you've hit terminal velocity? This can't get dumber. This is at 100% dumb. <laughs> you know? Like, that needs to be like a ministry in the government or something. It's like, let's just look around at our various laws and, all right, this one's weird, that one's fucked up, this is some weird shit we've just always done, whatever. But if we find one that is so dumb it can't even be parodied anymore, that's the thing that needs to change. That is too dumb to exist. So anyway, I was fucking out of it. I'm like, I just cannot believe how long this took. But I'm finally at this fucking hotel, and it's like, oh, god damn it, I'm just about to die. And of course, what I should have done is just gone and went to bed. But my flight wasn't until, like, 6.30 the next day. So even though I was way out of it, this dude Valentine, who, like I said, he knows how to rock the party, he came out of some side room. He found me slumped in the fucking uh, hallway, and he's like, hey, buddy. We asked them where we could smoke, and they put us over here in this smoking room. And now we're having a party. We cracked some liquor. Come on in. Come to the party room. <laughs> it's like, Valentine, you son of a bitch. All right, you got me. And this was the thing that even though I was still, like, sick, and I knew the next day the flight was going to be long and bad and whatever, but it's like, fuck it, man. This day has been so shitty. And I'm just flying off tomorrow to somewhere where I don't know anybody. And this Valentine dude is really cool and fun to hang out with. Let's go to the party room and let's just see what's happening. So it was Valentine and his girlfriend, who is Dutch, but as they discussed and got into, is definitely of uh, Indian descent, like from India. This pair of girls who were from India who vaguely knew each other, like they'd been to school together like 10 years before and happened to be on this flight together. And also this married couple from India who'd just gotten married. I think they were on their like honeymoon thing right now. And uh, they had cracked open this bottle of some kind of uh, Canadian club. I don't remember what kind it was, some special kind that was really good that they were cutting with water, and I was like, I shouldn't really, like, man, I'm not gonna be able to sleep, it's got a big flight tomorrow, I shouldn't drink too much of this, but started drinking. And they started showing us videos of their wedding, which is one of those crazy-ass weddings from India that's like three days long, and they said it costs like something like 250,000 euros, you know, like a quarter of a million for this wedding, because it was just like every person they'd ever fucking met, you gotta put them all up in a hotel. These videos were amazing, like professionally shot, professionally edited with music. It was like a series of like three music videos about their wedding. And it was just cool as fuck, we're watching their wedding, we're drinking. We realized that this Canadian club was like good enough that it's like, fuck the water, who needs to mix it with water? We just started drinking it. And then I was trying to resist. I'm like, I know it's not going to be a good idea. But the guy's like, hey, man, I already opened it. It's like this liter of this shit. We got to drink it today or what are we going to do? So I just started drinking. And also it was just like, fuck it, you know? When else am I going to be in this situation? I'm just in some weird Russian hotel where we're not allowed to leave. 
guys keep coming in and checking on us in their suits and their frowny faces and just hanging out with people. And the more I got drinking, you know, it was just like fun to talk and just easier to integrate with the group or whatever. And yeah, it was so interesting about, so this dude, Valentine's girlfriend, I don't remember, I don't remember any of their names because these were like legit India names, you know? Like, they were like, hey, Canadian, right? There's a lot of Indian people in Canada, right? And I was like, yeah, you know, Lily Singh, you know Lily Singh, right? And they're all like, yay. But yeah, in Canada, we don't have, like, the hardcore Indian names. But this girl, Valentine's girlfriend, did have, like, a hardcore Indian name. And they were going through, like, here's her mom's name, here's her uncle's name. And the people from India were like, oh, yeah, those are all super traditional names. Like, that's my grandpa's name or whatever. But in the Netherlands even though they're Indian or half Indian, you know, visually, you're like, all right, that person's from India. All the names are from India, but they don't culturally identify as Indian. They didn't, like this girl didn't really know she was Indian. (laughs) And it's just like this overwhelming evidence of like everything you're saying is so Indian. All these names, all these touchstones, all this cultural stuff. And it's just so interesting that it's from like, you know, the Dutch's colonial past. There's a lot of black people that live in the Netherlands too. And they're just disconnected now. They're just disconnected from where they came from. And it's just, it's just neat. It was interesting. It's interesting to learn weird stuff like that. Like where else would I ever learn it? And kind of the coolest point was, uh, so, you know, we were all drinking and getting drunker and drunker. And at one point I sat down on this cheap ass Russian chair and the chair just broke. And we all just died laughing at this chair that broke. And the Russian fucking local security guy came in, gave us the mean mug of just like, like, what is happening? What is all this laughing? Why aren't you people asleep? What are you doing in here? And he's just like, uh, you could tell he was a little annoyed that I broke the chair, but it's obvious that I didn't break the chair. I'm just a little skinny ass fucking skin and bones dude. It's just your shitty chair, your shitty Russian chair fucking broke. We actually, we wore that guy down a little bit by the end of the evening. <laughs> just like, Valentine did specifically, of just like, finally the guy kind of threw us a little smile at one point. You know, <laughs> it's like we finally wore him down. But yeah, as I was drinking and hanging out, I mean, I don't know that much about Indian culture, but this thing came back to me from years ago. Suddenly the power of drinking unlocked this in my brain of way back in the early 2000s. This must have been like 2001, I'm going to guess. In those early days of the internet, there was this video floating around. Is this guy, Dalar Mendy. It was this song, Tunak Tunak Tun. And it was like a little viral hit back then. Mainly because it was kind of ridiculous, you know? It was like he's this kind of overweight dude. He's wearing traditional Indian clothes. But in the video, there was like five copies of him with like bad 2000 special effects. Each wearing a different color of the robes. Like a red one, a green one, a blue one. And they all did these little dances to this song. And they kept giving these, like, little glances at each other. Like, one of them would do something, do some little dance, and the other one would give this little, like, ah, ha, ha. I don't know how to describe the look. Like, oh, you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and it was famous. I didn't tell them this, but it was famous because it was silly. You know, it was a very silly video. But I did legitimately like it. I listened to that song a bunch of times. So I brought that up. I'm like, hey, wait a sec. Like, I just had this weird brainstorm. Like, 
do you guys know the song Tunak Tunak Tun? And everyone was just like, yeah! And they brought it up on their phone, and it's this fucking Tunak Tunak Tun, Tunak Tunak Tun, Tunak Tunak Tun, Da Da Da. And we just like, I don't know the words, but I can sing it, you know, like phonetically, I can kind of. Like, I know the song, right? So we, we fucking pulled that up, and we all just sang along to that song. Not Valentine and his girlfriend, they didn't know it, but the everyone from India knew this song. And, like, that was, that made the whole thing, that made the whole night, like, just that moment of just, like, I'm in Russia with a bunch of people from India, and we're all singing Tunak Tunak Tun back in 2001 when, like, me and my friends in New Brunswick were just like, ha, look at this, look at this silly video. Like, I never could have known it would pay off like that, you know, all those years later. It was just awesome. But yeah, we drank way too much. We drank the whole bottle. And again, this is where that dude Valentine is just good at modulating the party, you know? Because <laughs> they were tempted to open another bottle, and he's like, no, no, look, that bottle's not getting open. Like, suddenly Party Dad became real dad, where he's like, do not open that. That is not opening. And then when the sun started to come up, we'd see the gray shitball fucking Russian, <laughs> you know, view at the window. He was the one that's like, it's bedtime now. We got to go to bed. We got to wrap this up because everybody else, once we got into the party vibe, we would have just kept going forever. But yeah, he was like, he, he arranged the party. He set up the party. I'm really thankful that he came and got me, you know, that he came and pulled me in. But then when it was over, he's like, also, party's over. Everybody fucking go to your rooms. But it was so fun, like even in that, in that night, we were talking about like, wouldn't it be great if we all took a trip to India and just all hung out there? Like it's so fun to hang out in this, this hotel room in Russia. What if we all hung out in India? That'd be cool. And it's not even so crazy. I mean, it's totally a thing that could happen. But I mean, as if, of course that's not gonna happen. That would just be weird. But in the moment, like it was just, it was a nice little, it's one of those things, it's like a nice thing to say. It's a nice uh, validation that like, yeah, we're all having a good time. We're, we're, all, we're all pretty cool. We're having an all right time right now. We've made the best out of this dumb situation. But then I fucking got back to my little hotel room. It was just like, I don't know where this dude was from. He spoke a little bit English, not much, but the dude had the big respirator. Dude had like sleep apnea, so it's again, it's just weird. I'm like going into this room with some roommate I've been assigned, and he's got his big machine hooked up to him, and he doesn't know who the fuck I am. I'm just like, sorry, don't, don't worry about me. But then I also realized like just how much I had drunk when I laid my head down on the pillow and closed my eyes, and it just felt like my head was still moving. Like, uh, do you ever get that feeling where it's like, it's like your head's in a, a cycle? of just like being two feet above the bed and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and it just feels like you're an elastic, you're just yo-yoing up and down. It's just like, oh no, fuck me. So I didn't sleep that well, woke up way too early, then still just ended up dicking around the stupid hotel all afternoon because the two o'clock bus to take us back to the airport didn't, of course they didn't get their shit together until like quarter to four. This one Dutch girl in our group was really starting to lose her shit. 
and I can't blame her. She's like, I'm gonna miss my other flight. Like, this can't happen again. This is not gonna happen again. Just get us on the bus. Like, what is wrong with you? And again, I just really felt like, I wish I could feel pity for these Russian people or empathy or something. I just can't because they were fucking everyone around so bad. But it again, it was totally just an infantilized society. Like, just absolutely like a bunch of little kids that have just been hit and they just can't do anything. <laughs> and they're just trying to mask their emotions and they're just trying not to fuck up. And in doing so, they're fucking up all the time, constantly. Driving everyone crazy, completely ineffectual terrible at everything they're trying to do, completely frustrating. But presumably everybody made it to their planes on time. Mine was the latest to leave, and I had about an hour, once everything was said and done, to just fucking dick around and wait at the gate. So I think it was probably a pretty tight call for everybody else, but I, yeah, I assume they made it. I know the people from India made it, because they left in the morning. So that was the Russian tale, and then just the flight, again, like a nine and a half hour flight. Very, very absurdly bad. I got an aisle seat, so that was good, just because, again, um, drinking all night did not help my situation with my stomach and stuff. Mostly, though, I think my stomach problems were mostly over. My hangover problems should have been worse, like when I was on the bus going back to the hotel with Valentine and his girlfriend the next day. We were saying, like, God, we're all hungover and shit. But then as we thought about it a little more, it's like, that really was high-quality liquor because we should be feeling worse than we are. We drank so much hard liquor. We didn't feel great, but we should have been feeling way worse than that. And then on the flight, I started developing a distinct sore throat and sickness that then dogged me into this first week in Japan. But I made it, and the one thing I want to say about that flight was one of those cases where I couldn't really fall asleep. I just felt like I was, you know, I'd put in my headphones, like earplugs, pull down my hat over my eyes, and just sit there and just try to... It's almost like it's mentally tough when you can't fall asleep, but you're just trying to sleep, to just sit there for hours and hours and hours and just try to soak it in and try to convince yourself, like... This, this is almost as good as sleep. This is still rest. You know, it's mentally taxing because I can't quite seem to fall asleep. But at least I'm resting and I just got to soak up as much of this as I can. And obviously I did kind of drift in and out at some point. It's not like I just sat there for nine and a half hours. But it's one of those times when it just never felt like I was sleeping, you know. And then toward the end of the flight, when there's about an hour and a half to go... I had soaked in as much sleep as I possibly could. I finally, when the lady came by giving out drinks, I finally got a coffee. And I was like, hey, can I get a coffee? And I hadn't had a coffee in a couple of days. I'm a low-level coffee addict, so I was already... Like, I just... I felt so underground, you know? Like, 90 feet underground, where I was definitely getting sick. I didn't really feel like I properly slept at all. And even just not drinking coffee, I think, contributed to that. But I got this coffee, put in some sugar, put in some cream. The worst coffee in the world, but just drank it. And then went to the bathroom. And I honestly think that's the best coffee 
I ever had in my life. <laughs> like, I kind of approach coffee sort of medicinally a lot. Of like, it's just what I need to kind of get my day going and stuff. Like, I definitely got a low-level dependence on caffeine. But man, I've never gone from... It's like, so all that just feeling like I was underwater. And just feeling so blah and just no energy. But drinking that coffee not only gave me the normal coffee boost... It gave me the additional boost of clearing up the fact that I hadn't had any coffee in a couple of days. So it, it wiped out the uh, extra bad feelings of caffeine withdrawal. But it also felt like it unlocked that sleep I had done. All that rest that I had been trying desperately to, to scrabble together during the flight and just didn't seem like it had helped at all. That coffee, it's like it unlocked all that. It's like that floodgate opened and it gave me that and I was just standing in the bathroom looking in the mirror and I'm like in 90 minutes I'm gonna be in Japan I'm almost there I made it I made it through all this fucking shit and it's just like that was the I guess the best coffee is the wrong way to put it because it tasted like shit but the most valuable coffee I have ever had in my life <laughs> like it just saved me I felt so much better and then the fucking plane got there and I got down to Japan and after a month of just the kind of odd aloofness of Dutch people and like, hey, if you get run over by a bicycle, it's your own fault and just, you know, whatever. They're not the worst, but they're not the best. And then the Russians, who are the worst, so unfriendly, so shitty. I got to Japan and right away, like I'm sure I'll talk about this more or I have more thoughts about it or whatever. People are just nice. They're just friendly. They're accommodating. It seemed like, hey, thanks for coming to Japan. <laughs> you know, Even when uh, I told the lady at uh, like customs that I was going to be in Tokyo and then I was going to Fukuoka, which I think she doesn't hear very often because I'd never heard of Fukuoka before Brad moved there. I kept saying it wrong. Fukuoka, I kept saying until he kind of we're talking on the phone and he's like, you, you keep saying it wrong. And I was like annoyed. I'm like, well, I keep saying it wrong because no one's ever heard of it. No one knows what Fukuoka is. So I think that lady is like, I don't know if anyone's ever said to her that they're going to Fukuoka because she's just like that sort of theatrical, like funny. Is this really funny reaction? Where she's just like, what? <laughs> like what? Fukuoka? Like, the opposite of these stern fucking... This was the customs lady, too, of just, like... In Russia, she would have been, you know, acting like she was made out of metal. Like she was part tank. In Japan, she was just like, whoa! Fukuoka, right on. Well, have fun, buddy. Here you go. Stamp, stamp. Go have fun, my friend. <laughs> you know, and I was like, this is amazing. This is so much better. And yeah, I'm sure I'll have thoughts and stuff, especially as I'm here longer. I mean, I'm always creeped out by collectivism and culture. Like when people say like, oh, I love traveling to see other cultures. Like, I think that's where there's a big disconnect for me is to me, culture is like a bad word. Culture is just everybody acting the same. And that, that doesn't, that's not a good thing. That's a scary thing. That's a pod people thing. But if your culture is going to guide you in a direction, at least here in Japan, it's guiding people in the direction of being cool and being friendly and being nice. I'm sure if you live here and you got a mortgage and you got to deal with bureaucracy and stuff, <clears throat> I'm sure that's not fun. 
If you get arrested by the Japanese police, I'm sure that's not fun. But on a very surface level, man, it's so much more fun than these other fucking places. Way better. Like, it really blew my mind even just uh, trying to find my hostel that first afternoon. And again, I was just like, whew, just like out of it, fucking worn out. It was really hot that day. I got lost because the directions said a left where they should have said a right. Uh, I hadn't even clocked in yet to the idea that you're supposed to be on the left and not the right. I was probably walking in people's way all the time. But right away I noticed, like, uh, say I, like, stepped out of the way of an old man on a bicycle. The old man would nod at me in, like, a nice way. Like, hey, thanks. Thanks for getting out of my way. Where I was thinking, like, that would never happen in the Netherlands. That would never happen in Russia. That might not even happen in Canada. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, and that kept happening over and over. My friend Rayanne mentioned, like, hey, don't forget, though, you are a tall, skinny white guy. You're not at the bottom of the uh, Japanese pecking order. I was like, you know, that's true. That is true. However, hey, I'll take it. And <laughs> just like, really is just like the happy ending at the end of all that nonsense. It's like, cool, I'm in Japan, and it's like, it's pretty fun. It's like kind of neat. It's a lot less... Like I was saying last episode, I travel is just a, it's a burden. It's a lot of work. And I still feel that. Like I was thinking that of, uh, there's this guy, Chris Broad, who does, uh, he's an English guy who lives in Japan. And he was just talking about how, just that politeness thing of like, hey, if you can't speak Japanese, as long as you're nice and polite and you make some kind of effort, you'll be okay. Whereas in, say, like France, that's not the case. People are going to yell at you. Even when I was in the Netherlands, uh, this lady started giving out to me about my shoes. And I don't know what her problem was with my shoes. She was just ranting at me in Dutch, pointing at my shoes. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know, people are just dicks. And it really made me think, like, how much do I want to travel to deal with that? How much do I want to go to these places where people are just going to be, where their culture is to be a loud, obnoxious asshole? How much do I want to do that? How is that worth it? Why is that worth it? You know, just this idea of culture. Oh, let's just go absorb culture. Well, what if your culture sucks? What if your culture is a pain in the ass? And it's just so nice to be at a place where the culture is not a pain in the ass. The culture is friendly. The culture is nice. It's like, whew, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, I still never got to uh, how this relates to writing. <laughs> but last episode, I was saying how uh, my, even just my little experience at the airport gave me an idea for a story. So my extended stay in uh, the Moscow airport and then that hotel and all that shit gave me more ideas for the story. So I'm going to get into that after a quick, uh, quick break because i got to go find a washroom right now. I think I'm going to leave this... Uh, shrine but hey man this is cool cheers to you shrine this was a good place to walk around and talk to myself so i'll be right back after uh this little jingle
I'm just walking back past the map that I saw in the first place. This is called the Gokokuji Temple, across from Zoshigaya Cemetery. For the record. Okay, I'm back. It's uh, evening now. I gotta talk a little quiet because I'm walking through a pretty quiet residential sort of place. One thing I love to do to get to know a, a city or whatever, so from where my Airbnb is, the closest major station is called Ikebukuro. And it's pretty major, like all the major trains all stop there. I'd never heard of it before, but it's kind of cool because it's like, uh, you know, Akihabara is the place that's kind of uh, famous for video games and anime and manga and shit. So Ikebukuro is just like a, the junior version of that. And it's got the big arcades, big Sega and Taito arcades. And uh, then if you cross over to the other side of the station, that's where it is a little more like pachinko parlors and dudes asking if you're looking for girls. <laughs> it's a little seedier but it's uh, still cool. And just because it's the first place when I was all sick when I first got here, it was about as far as I could make it, so I hung out there. So it's just like, it feels kind of cool. It's like, you know, just like you adopt little neighborhoods. It feels a little bit like, ah, Ikebukuro, that's my little neighborhood. So then I just like to kind of start adding to stuff, like I'll just get off the subway one stop before Ikebukuro and wander around and get kind of lost and try to figure out how to get there and then do the same thing on the way back. So like get off one stop before where my Airbnb is or one stop after. This is what I did in Montreal also. And it's just kind of neat because you really do see those little in-between spots. Those really are kind of my favorite, just those kind of nothing places that are just in between the major landmarks. And it really does help to build a kind of mental map to feel like you know the place, like you know what's going on, you know these little details and these little places, they just kind of make it more personal. Like this is going to be my more sort of personal experience of, of Japan, is like I'm going to know, you know, the walk between Oyama and Nakaitabashi, <laughs> you know, like what the fuck is that, who cares about that? But it's just like, that's for me, it's my neat little thing that I'm doing. And like this Oyama place, it's just like, it's like an outdoor mall, but it has a big canopy over it. So like on rainy days, it's awesome. You know, it's just like this big long thing that's like tons of stores and stuff, but protected from the rain. And then today I walked the other way down the street that I'd never done before. And it doesn't have the canopy, but it's still just this like narrow street with a bunch of shit going on. It feels like one of those Yakuza games. Lots of barbers, if you ever need a barber, <laughs> which I do, I need to get my hair buzzed off. But even though that's all I'm going to ask is like, just buzz me, just buzz all my hair off. I'm a little intimidated. I don't like talking to barbers at the best of times. <laughs> so I haven't pulled the trigger yet in Japan, but, but yeah, just these little, I don't know, it's just all quiet, just neat. And this place, it's just so, uh. I mean, I've already walked past like six different convenience stores, you know, like you can't really get lost, you know, you're always 
near something. It's funny too, just like how many drink machines there are everywhere. I remember I had this apartment in Toronto in like 2010, I think this was, where my apartment burned down and I just desperately needed a place to stay. And this was pre-Airbnb and stuff. Things were a little trickier. And uh, I found this lady, it was a really good location, but a really dumb situation where I was just like, she kind of segregated off a little piece of her living room and I just lived there. And I did this for way too long. It was, uh, we were really kind of under each other's feet the whole time. But she needed a roommate because she was about to get kicked out and I needed a place to stay. But uh, I spent a lot of time out of the house, obviously, when I lived there. That was kind of the beginnings, I think, of my current lifestyle of, like, let's just never go home. So I got kind of comfortable just walking around. It was right by the St. Lawrence Market in Toronto, so it was a great location. Just walking around downtown for fucking a year. But I remember one night, it was really late at night, and uh, I was so thirsty. And I finally found some drink machines down by the waterfront. And I had just enough money to get one bottle of pop. And the machine didn't work. It took my money and nothing came out. And I just remember how crushing it was, that beautiful glow at three in the morning. And I had just enough money for my salvation. And then it didn't work. (laughs) And I think of that a lot while I'm here because there's so many drink machines everywhere. Everywhere. Like you just see them all over the place. And they all work. They're all in meticulous upkeep. Man, yeah, like right now, I can talk a little louder right now because before, you know, still people and stuff on the streets. I don't know where I am. I think I'm alongside a school, maybe. Just for this little stretch anyway, like there's just nobody here. And it's just like this weird architecture of Japan. It's so strange. There's this little road. There's a park across the street and a bathroom. So many bathrooms. It's great. And then across the park here, there's like these weird steps that go down to just some weird little back street. And there's these houses and everything is kind of run down. I was surprised by that. Like the major, major parts of Tokyo are what you might expect. You know, they're super duper fancy pants and nice. But overall, Japan is a lot more run down than I expected. But I don't dislike that. I kind of like it. It's sort of (laughs) comfortable, you know? Because it doesn't feel like decay. It feels like, kind of like they're not trying too hard to fight against Mother Nature. They're kind of letting it encroach a bit, you know? Like it would be disingenuous to keep everything spick and span and super spotless and pristine all the time. Because that's not how it works. That's not the world. Anyway, I'm rambling. So uh, what I wanted to end this episode with is... uh, The thing about, like, where do ideas come from, which doesn't really concern me that much, I think because I go at a slow, deliberately slow pace. I do think when people are kind of concerned about trying to find ideas, it's because they're pushing themselves too hard and too fast. So they can't come up with enough fucking horseshit to uh, keep up with all the babble that's coming out of their fingers. So I just kind of gather ideas as they come, and if I don't have a particular a particularly strong sense of what I'm doing on a given day or a strong sense of an idea. I just do a little tiny bit of work, but then call it a day and sleep on it till tomorrow and just keep on grinding, you know? 
But I'd say the most important thing about ideas is just to always be ready for them, you know? Always be uh, receptive. Be open to them and make sure you write them down when you do have them. Maybe haphazard is a good way to describe how Japan feels. Like in uh, the Netherlands, especially where I was, kind of outside of the center. Everything is so uniform and like every building on a block is going to look identical. Maybe in a whole neighborhood, you know, they might all look identical. Everything is very regimented and planned. Where Japan really does just feel like stuff piled on top of stuff. In a cool way, I mean here in the city. I'm sure the countryside's a lot different. But anyway, like I said last episode, uh, I had this idea while I was in the Russian airport that wasn't really an idea for a story, it was an idea for life, (laughs) that I saw this really cute red-haired woman working at the airport, and I was like, "Ah, I wish I could talk to her. And then when it became obvious that I was not leaving (laughs) the airport, I was going to be stuck there, it's like, I'd be cool if I saw her again, this would be the perfect opportunity to talk to her and then I started running the scenarios in my mind of like what could I possibly say how could I possibly sell myself as a a worthwhile person (laughs) you know with uh, so many hurdles to overcome I'm from a different country I'm just some random person we speak different languages I'm not well established career or money wise None of it made any sense, but that's when it kind of flipped over to like, okay, in real life that would never work. There's no chance. And I didn't see her again anyway. But then I flipped that to like, but all those thoughts and all those ideas, maybe that would make a cool story. And I think that's a a really good way to approach writing stories is start it with like, what would you want in life? What do you wish you had? Because that's something I really feel like is missing in a lot of stuff. When I watch TV shows and movies that are just kind of uh, not really grabbing me, which is happening a lot now with TV, especially. Because, you know, TV used to be week to week. Like, each episode had to be self-contained. Each episode needed to have a distinct wrap-up point. And that obviously hurt long-term storytelling in a lot of ways, but it also at least guaranteed that something was going to happen, you know? Like, when you watched an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, it might be a two-parter, but, you know, at most, it's a two-hour story, usually a one-hour story, and it's going to get wrapped up and resolved in that one hour. And then, in the background, characters are going to progress and things are going to move forward in a larger way. But I kind of miss that just because, at least... That way, they were forced to have things happen. And now that TV shows are just serialized, you can have a whole episode where nothing really happens. You can have a whole season where nothing really happens. It just keeps getting pushed forward of like, yeah, okay, nothing really happened, but hold on, it's going to happen at the end of the year. This is all leading toward the big wrap-up. But then does anything really happen at the end of the year or are we just rolling on to the next year? And, you know, it's just, uh, it just tires me out. I'm just like, what, what is the point of this? What the fuck is the purpose of this? And maybe that sounds reductive. Like maybe it's a little much to say, like, what is this story about? I don't think it is, but I can see why other people would think that's maybe uh, a bit of a narrow view of storytelling. 
But it frustrates me because I don't know what it's about. I'm like, I don't know what the point of this is. I don't know who made this or why they made it. And even if you don't look at it in that sense of like, what is the literal point? What is the actual message? Because uh, actually I'll get into that a bit later in this episode because I, I don't necessarily think that's even that good of an idea to write with a, an agenda like that. But I wonder what the point is just on like a personal experiential level. Like as a person on the earth, here we are, we're on the earth, we've got our one life, we have our experiences, we have our ups and downs, we have our hopes and our dreams, and we have so many things that are never gonna happen, you know? Or like things that happened once and are never gonna happen again. Or things that are rare, or these feelings and experiences that that we all long for, that we wish we could feel again or at all. There's things that we want, and to me, that's what a story is for, you know? It's a dream, it's a little mass dream. I can show you a dream and you can look at the dream I made and we can experience it. And I feel like that is severely underutilized and lacking of like, we have these opportunities. We have these opportunities to feed that part of us that has these fantasies and these wants and these desires that we can never have but we can pretend, and why aren't we, <laughs> you know? Like, what the fuck are these stories about? What are these movies about? What are these TV shows about? To me, I just, I feel empty. I feel like they're not about anything. And it just, man, it bums me out. <laughs> so I think that's a very good way to approach coming up with ideas for stories and ideas for writing, is what do you want? What do you long for? What do you wish that you had? So just forget about it as a story. Just think about your life. Think about your life and think about what is missing. Think about what hole you wish you could fill, what wound you wish you could salve, you know, and work from there. So in this case, it was a, a literal, actual fantasy I had of like, I wish I could talk to that girl. I wish I could learn more about her and her situation. I wish I could overcome these weird circumstances. And ultimately, I wish I could present myself as a valuable person. <laughs> you know, that's what I want. That's what I wish for. So that's what this story is about, you know? And maybe it's not cool, you know, to be so openly plaintive to just so openly admit, you know, your desires and your feelings of weakness and like, here's, here's what I wish that I had, here's how I wish I was, here's how I wish people saw me. You know, it's probably exposing a lot about myself and my own weaknesses and my own fucking weird detriments. But you got to do that, you know, to tell a story. And I mean, this is still, this is shallow. This is a pretty shallow story. I wish that the cute girl at the fucking airport would hang out with me. But it, this works on all the levels of, you know, like fucking... This story I'm writing about these two kids that are stranded on an island together. And one of them goes crazy. Very, very obviously about my schizophrenic brother and the fact that I couldn't help him from going crazy, you know? It's the two sides of that coin is like, I want to 
get to the bottom of what my desires are, what I wish I had, what I, what I long for. And to know that, you've got to know where your weaknesses are, what hurts you the most, what is the most difficult thing in your life. And even like this dumb story about just like, I wish the girl at the airport would hang out with me. I think that's not coincidence either of just that, you know, I just spent a fucking month by myself in the Netherlands and now I'm by myself in Tokyo. And like I was saying, hanging out with Valentine and those guys at the fucking Moscow fucking hotel was like so awesome because I just hadn't hung out with anybody all month. So I think that's one reason why this, like, like I've said in earlier episodes, how I don't really, I don't vibe with romance stories. I don't really feel it. I don't really get, I don't get that. I just don't know how to write that kind of story. But now I do. Right now I do feel it. I don't think I would have gravitated towards some girl at the airport if I hadn't just spent a month by myself, you know? So grab it now, grab it while it hurts, grab it while it feels raw, you know, use this feeling. There's a train going by is why everything's beeping. Even this, I find this so weirdly nice of just like the, uh, the bell starts ringing. The barrier goes down. Everybody just has to stop. Everybody just has to stop and wait for the train to go by. There's me, there's this taxi cab. On the other side, there's a car, somebody on their bike. And we all just have to take a fucking half a minute and just wait. I just like it. I like enforced downtime in life. I really do like it just feels nice those nice little moments like again I I don't know I could go do all the touristy stuff in the world and all the top 10 shit you got to see in Tokyo and it wouldn't be as good to me as these little moments like this like walking through these neighborhoods at night stopping at a 7-eleven getting some kind of chocolate eclair (laughs) fucking just stopping for the train to go by even just recording a podcast like this rambling to myself like these are the memories I like this is what I like So anyway, this story about this girl, yeah, it came up with a bunch more stuff that I added to it. Man, there's a lot of trains. There's another one. (laughs) So yeah, my basic, I, I came up with kind of the whole, like, I like to, I like to have, uh, an overall structure. And I came up with like a whole structure for this story that's good enough. Like I'm going to need a lot more details and a lot more moments to like fill in the gaps to make everything feel vital all the way through but I've got the basic skeleton all figured out so this guy misses his transfer in the Moscow airport they put him in a capsule and uh, and he sees the girl that he noticed who works at the uh, airport and he convinces her to hang out with him a bit and they hang out and have a cool night that night then the next day He's supposed to get on his new flight and he's just like, he's, he's teetering. He's like, it would be crazy for me not to get on this flight, right? Like if I let this flight go, then what? Then I'm just stranded in fucking Russia at the airport. But what if I did that, you know? (laughs) What if I did that and I could see that girl again? Because we had such a good night yesterday and it was supposed to just be this one-off weird thing. But what if it wasn't? What if it went another day? 
And what I was going to have push him, tip him over the edge, is all that stuff that happened to me with hanging out with that Valentine dude. Instead of his group, his group would show up that day. They missed their flight. They're all stuck. And in real life, you know, we went to this hotel, but it took th till 3.30 in the morning to get to the hotel. So in my story version, it would be this group that is stuck at the airport. Maybe they're on their way to the hotel and they just never make it, you know? Because again, it's like 3 in the morning and it takes so long. Maybe they all have morning flights in this scenario. So like those uh, poor Brazilians that got all the way to the airport and had to come back. Maybe in this case, it's like, it's just too late. It's just taking too long and it's too slow to deal with this bureaucracy. There's no point in going to the hotel. We're just going to stay at the airport. So basically, it's this group of people all hanging out, waiting for a flight that our little main character can go hang out with and be like, hey, I was in the same boat as you yesterday, but this happens all the time. Commiserate about the craziness. And then that makes the decision for him. Like, he's already right on the edge of like, should I just skip this flight? Should I not do this today? And he's just hanging out with these people, drinking, smoking, having a fun time, just like trying to make the best of being stranded. So the same thing that happened to me at the hotel, but just move it to the airport. And then the cool redheaded Russian girl who works at the airport could show up. And there's the dude that she hung out with the day before. And now he's got this gang of people and they're all hanging out and drinking and smoking and having fun. And she's off work for the day or whatever. So she's like, well, fuck it. All right, let's hang out again. Let's do day number two. Then day number three, Valentine and all the party people are gone. They got on their flights and they left. But our protagonist is still there because he's already let his flight go. Like at this point, all he can do is buy another flight at a horribly expensive price. So it doesn't matter when he does it. There's no hurry anymore. He's already let it go. He's already made the dumb choice. He's just stuck. So he stays for a third day. And the girl hangs out with him again, but she's like, this has got to stop. This is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? This is where they have their kind of reckoning of like, what do you want me to do? I'm from Russia. I'm not just going to leave with you. Like, what, what is this? This is such nonsense. Like, you got to get out of here. And the, <laughs> this is like, it's been fun, but what the fuck is this? So then another day passes and day four, she doesn't work that day. She even tells him that. She's like, look, I don't work tomorrow. I'm not coming to the airport. I'm not going to be here. You get your ass out of here. This is silly and this is over. We had a great time, but get out of here. But day four, he doesn't go. He just stays at the airport. He just stays by himself. Nothing really fun going on. The girl's not there. But then she shows up. She shows up in her street clothes because even though it was her day off, she comes to the airport and she looks different because she's not dressed in her stiff regalia anymore she's in her normal clothes and they have kind of a little reconciliation and she's like you know i i did hope you would be here when i showed up and they have another nice romance day and things end on a, a nicer note and then on day five he finally does leave but they leave on kind of like an ambiguous but like hopefully sort of positive note of like this doesn't seem like this could work this doesn't make any sense I'm certainly not going to come with you today. Maybe not ever. But it's the modern world. It's not like you'll fly away and that's the end of it. I mean, it's, we got Facebook, we got cell phones, we got all this stuff. We can be connected. We can keep this connection and we can see what happens. We can try to go somewhere with this. 
But for now, you gotta buy a plane ticket and you gotta go home. You can't just keep living at the airport, you know? And of course, you know by now, if you're a regular listener of this uh, podcast, how much I like to envision things as movies, you know, that it kind of helps me uh, keep things together in my head, or it's a nice way to visualize stuff. So I've got that basic structure, I've got the five days all sorted out. And of course, this could all change while I'm writing it. This is just to have an outline to, uh, you know, string things along to have, uh, you know, some structure while writing. So I've got those five days laid out, and then for the ending, I like the idea of just like the kind of bittersweet parting at the airport, kind of like how Garden State probably should have ended. (laughs) And uh, not too happy, but not too sad, you know, just kind of like not some big phony baloney romance blowout, but not this is never going to happen, just like a maybe, a nice maybe. And when I think of it like a movie, it would be the final shot is just this Russian, big-ass Russian plane flying above the clouds, nice gentle shot, no sound. And then just as the credits start to roll from the bottom of the screen, we keep on the shot of the plane. The plane keeps flying as the credits roll. And the song A Bell and a Whistle by Early Mart plays, because it's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard, and it's just tonally, like, that's the tone. Like, tone control. Tone is so important. Like, that's that's the tone I want to get to, even though this would not be a movie. (laughs) Maybe someday. But uh, for now, it would just be a story. But still, to try to hit that, that tone, that feeling of the plane flying over the clouds. Nice, calm, languid, quiet. Then that song starts to play, credits roll, and then as that song ends, we fade to black. Credits keep rolling. And that's one thing I love so much that doesn't happen often. Movies don't do it very often, but I love the credits rolling over ambient imagery. The first time I remember seeing that was that movie uh, Finding Forrester, which uh, I don't really remember the details of that well. It was like Gus Van Sant's movie after Goodwill Hunting. I think the most famous thing about it was fucking Sean Connery's this famous writer and he like helps uh, shepherd this young black kid into being a better writer. And he says, you're the man now, dog. (laughs) I think that stupid fucking line is probably its most lasting fucking contribution to modern pop culture. But the part I liked the best was the movie ended with just a shot of a basketball court and that kid just playing basketball with his friends and the credits just roll while he plays basketball. And I love that so much. Like, if you've got a big kablam ending, like a big cut to black directed by so-and-so ending, that's great. But if you don't, you know, if you have a story that ends on an ambiguous note, on like a soft note, on a gentle note, I love so much. It's just the credits rolling over the image. And it's like, all right, you can get up and leave the theater now if you're a fucking heartless fucking mush head. (laughs) Or you can just sit and soak it in and just contemplate and think about what, what just happened. And I mean, so there you go. Like, that's it. I got enough 
that's enough to make this whole story. Like, like I've said before, uh, you know, there's that debate about, they call it planners and pantsers. Planners are, you know, people who plan out a whole story. Pantsers are the people that write by the seat of their pants. And I really think both are wrong. <laughs> you know, if you plan excessively, I think you're missing out on some of the best stuff that you can come up with because when you're in the moment, when you're really inhabiting each moment as you write, I really think that's where most of the really great stuff comes from. That's where most of the really idiosyncratic moments come from. But if you're just a pantser, if you don't plan at all, I guarantee your endings suck shit, you know? <laughs> like you need, you need some kind of plan. You need some kind of goal. You need some form to hang your story on. And then if it changes on the way, great. But you got to have the plan, I think. You can't just hope that the plan will come together because it won't. It never does. Like, just look at the history of writing. It's just mountains of bad endings. It's not an accident. So, yeah, that's where I feel like even just those two days at the uh, airport were enough for me to come up with. Like, that's enough. I've got enough of a skeleton for this story. I've got it in the five days. I've got the feeling of the ending that I like. I don't intend to like sit down and start working on this story anytime soon, but I got what I need. Like at this point, like I like that balance of the mechanical and the inspired where really all I got to do now is I got to split it into the five days. I could just write, okay, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Then I can split each day into the different beats as much as I know them just start filling in the gaps, you know, just working on all the stuff. And then if things change on the way, that's great. If it's fewer days, if it's more days, if the whole ending changes, that's fine. Go with the inspiration, you know, go with what feels right as, as you're writing. But I think it's better to have that plan. Like I wouldn't start working on this story without at least this level of, of a plan. But as it is, I've got a structure, I've got an ending, I'm good to go. How long it would take to actually fill this out and to, because, and like, I think the, the cardinal sin of writing is to write boring feeling stuff and rote feeling stuff. So I'm going to need way more details than I have now, you know? I'm going to have to mine all my experiences of spending time with a girl to try to get as many of those moments and those little, that, that feeling that I can to make this story worthwhile. There's still a lot of work to be done, but, but I think that's a pretty good example of like, when you have a weird experience, like I'm never gonna have an experience like that again. I'm never gonna be trapped in the <laughs> Russian airport again. Even if I was, it wouldn't be the same. You know, just when these things happen, when these odd things happen in life, you know, capture them <laughs> and uh, work them into a story. I don't know, shit, I came to the end of this now. I don't feel like I don't have any fucking, I don't know how to wrap it up. I don't know what the point is. Just that's just an example. That's all. That's just an example of how an experience can become a story. And the level of detail I feel like is important. I feel like what I got is like the bare minimum, but it is enough. I could make this, a story out of this. Now I'm trying to figure out where I am. I'm definitely lost. Just been wandering randomly. I walked along this, uh, this big kind of ravine. What do you call that? Like in uh, Terminator 2. 
I guess I just got to figure out which way the train is. <laughs> I couldn't have wandered too far from the train. So if I can get back to the train, I'll be okay. I can follow the train line and figure out how to get to my Airbnb. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of fantasies and just fantasizing about stuff, when I was thinking about, uh, when I, you know, expanded the scope of this story to add in the stuff that happened to me at that airport about, you know, staying at the hotel with these people from these different places and hanging out and having all this fun, <laughs> that's where I was, like, my fantasy. I'm starting to realize more and more how many of my fantasies involve directing a movie. I really got to try to do that before I die. <laughs> but I was thinking, okay, if this was a movie, I would love to make, even though I would transplant that scene from the Russian hotel just back to the airport. I don't know that much about how airports work, but my idea would be that because the redheaded girl works at the airport, she can find side places and take them places they're not supposed to be and whatever. But I would love to just recreate that scene. You know, it's like the cheap chair breaking and everybody singing Tunak Tunak Tun. And even just the basic setup of like the North American dude, the uh, Australian guy, and then the people from India and the girl, the Indian girl from the Netherlands. Like just that setup, just set it up enough that if those people saw this movie 10 years from now or whatever, it would blow their fucking minds because they would just be like, that is fucking us. That is definitely us. Like, I was there that day. That happened to me, you know? I would love that so much. Even though they're these people I just met one time and the only ones whose the only name I know is Valentine because his name was so memorable, I would just love it for them to see it and just be like, holy shit. That fucking guy we hung out with made this movie and he put us in it, you know? I would love that. And then I even thought, additionally, I'm like, man, it would be so cool. Because, uh, I don't know, if I had a normal phone with data and stuff, I could have just become all their Facebook friends and shit. But I don't have that, so I did not. But how hard can it be to find Valentine from The Hague, you know? I got the sense that he was like some kind of business guy, like a reseller or an importer or something. And he's, you know, an Australian Dutch guy who is the life of the party. Like, I just feel like, how hard could it be to find him? I bet I could find him if I had to. And I could put him in the movie. <laughs> Imagine how great that would be. Hey, buddy, remember me? I'm making a movie. I need you to come be in it. God damn it, it would be the best. That would be like my favorite thing in the whole world. I think I might be walking the wrong way because I don't hear the train. <laughs> I should at least be hearing the ding, ding, ding of the train going by. So I'm gonna walk the other way for a bit and see what happens. I did pass a little uh, map, but it was all in Japanese. Although I just got that thing, that, uh, that cool Google Translate thing, you know, where you hold up, I forgot about this thing, but you, you hold up your camera and it translates on the fly and it's all nonsense in Japanese. It doesn't make any sense, but you can get the gist of it. And it's just so cool, man. It's literally like a special effect from a movie. Like I, I heard somebody say this, some pithy Twitter thing the other day, but it's true is that when you get old enough, you realize that you're like a time traveler who's trapped in the future. Like, my world is gone, man. When I was a young teen, we didn't have the internet. 
you know, we just had CD players, fucking Walkmans, Discmans or whatever. And now we have all this crazy tech that is like out of a fucking movie. It's crazy. Mission Impossible shit is real now. And I have it on my $50 7-Eleven garbage phone. It's, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. Anyway, this has been quite a rambly episode. So I want to end with one last thing is... I've definitely been... Uh, so I said a bit er- earlier about uh, the idea of writing with an agenda. Anything with an agenda, I don't like. Like, I've started to realize that's what I really don't like about current internet discourse is the agenda thing. I really, really try hard to not take a side. And I think I have certain inherent, I mean, I grew up on Ayn Rand books and shit. I have certain inherent biases or whatever, ways that I lean. But I really don't feel like I lean very far. Like, if you take the, the classic American left or right, the people on the right really kind of repulse me. Like, I don't like how they talk about things. I don't like how they proceed. I don't like their attitude. But people on the left, I also am just like, there's a seed of, like, you're doing the right thing or you're trying to be progressive or you're going for social change, but the way you're doing it is, again, just terrible. Just so goddamn awful. And that's what I've realized is like, it's because it's, if you just take a situation, okay, here's a situation, here's the thing that happened, let's look at it, let's look what happened, let's break it down. I feel like that's what the news should be, or that's what reporting should be, or that's even just a person's opinion should be, here's the situation, let's figure out what we think about this. But once you have an agenda... It's just, it's all, it's just garbage, (laughs) you know? If you're just looking for the thing, like, just this is a a, a pedestrian example, but there was a little video game news story recently about uh, this game that had the word retard in a song because it was a musical game and they were using the term retardo or retard, it's like the, the musical term for slow down, you know? And somebody wrote an article about it. This game has the word retard in it. This isn't okay. Completely missing the context, completely completely worthless. That is just worthless reporting. And it's because it's coming from the place of an agenda. You know, it's not, let's look at a situation and report on it. It's, I'm looking for this kind of situation. My agenda is social change, or my agenda is, I don't know, whatever right-wing weird shit. Either way, if you are looking at every situation through the lens of your agenda, it's just trash. It's not worth anything. It's not gonna progress anything. It's not gonna help anything. I don't know. I mean, I have friends that are, like, well-meaning people and have, like, I mean, basically good politics, but are still coming at everything from that perspective. Everything's through that lens of these, these are my politics and this is how I see everything and this is how I interpret everything. And it's just, it just doesn't work, <laughs> you know? It just isn't. And then, I don't know, I'm way more like, I think I'm, I'm way more just like I don't care is my baseline. I really don't care, <laughs> you know? And we gotta look at a situation and find a reason for me to care and most of the time I don't care. 
And people will say, that's, uh, that's not appropriate. That's not the right way to proceed. That's not, you got to be a warrior on the front lines. You got to care more. But I don't think so. I think you care too much and shit goes bad because then you're just looking for the fight. You're looking for the problem. You're looking for the word retard and you just, you know, what the fuck is that? What is the point of that? So along those lines, the idea of this story taking place in Russia and being critical of Russian methods and Russian ways of just being a Russian bureaucracy or Russian philosophy, blah, blah, blah. It's all this stuff that I don't really know about. I only know the most surface stuff about. And I don't care, you know? Like, I don't have some agenda against Russia. I don't care. And if you just, just, I did like just a little bit of searching and it gets so creepy right away. If you look at like YouTube comments and stuff about videos about Russia, it's like, ah, Russia, it is gorgeous. It is so beautiful. Putin is doing such an amazing job. And man, like that is the best thing about America. America's got a lot of problems, but America always makes fun of its leaders. There's always a version of whoever's the president on SNL and I can't overstate how important that is, that that country just lets you say, this president is a fucking idiot. Because the reverse of that, the oh, glorious Putin, oh, glorious whoever, is so fucking pathetic. <laughs> you know, it's just like so lame and so sad. And it's just like, oh, you poor little mush-headed worms. Your leader's a piece of trash, just like every leader's a piece of trash. And to just, like, defend your dumb country and all of its trash garbage that it does. Just sad. Just a sad state of affairs. So I just don't want to be involved in that at all. You know, I got no, no fucking dog in that fight. I don't need to criticize Russia. I don't need to pretend I know how it works. Because I don't. I don't know anything. I don't know anything and I don't care, <laughs> you know? But I know if I made this story about Russia, the backlash would be bananas, you know? These people would go fucking nuts that someone's criticizing their shitball country. And I can't really blame them, you know? It's like, everybody is like that. Everybody gets mad. I get kind of mad because people won't stop piling on pineapple pizza. I don't know when pineapple pizza became <laughs> the fucking whipping boy of the world, but everyone makes fun of pineapple pizza. And that's a Canadian invention, man. They made it in Ontario. Hawaiian pizza's not from Hawaii. And just the other day, I felt myself getting annoyed. I'm like, you fucks. Fuck you. Pineapple pizza's fucking great, you little bitches. Stop fucking complaining about pineapple pizza, you fucks. <laughs> you know, that's literally the stupidest thing in the world. So if I was to make a whole story or some movie or something that the whole thing is about how fucking bureaucratic and shitty Russia is, man, talk about asking for trouble. <laughs> you know, talk about asking for controversy that I don't want and I don't need and isn't the point anyway. The point is, you know, collectivism in general. It doesn't, for being from uh, a collectivist society, one character's collectivist society, the other character's fucking individualist society, but how different are they really, and how does it affect things? It is about that, but it's not specifically about Russia. I don't give a shit about Russia. 
But that made me realize it would actually be kind of cool to just fictionalize it. Just make up a country, you know? Like, it would be very obvious that it's, you know, Soviet-ish or thereabouts. The accents, you know, make up an alphabet that's, like, weird because Cyrillic writing is really weird. And it'd be one of those things where, like, everybody would know, like, yeah, okay, that's about, it's obviously about Russia. But it's not about Russia, you know? It's, uh, it'd be more vague, more generalized, and I think just neater. I think that would actually kind of be more, like, open creatively, you know? Instead of trying to make this story about Russia and trying to actually learn about Russia and make sure I'm not out of line and that the shit I'm saying makes some kind of sense... Just be stifling, you know, where if I just made it about a fantasy place, then I can do whatever. So because the only stuff I really know about Russia is from reading Ayn Rand biographies, I just pulled up a list of like all the character names in Atlas Shrugged. And there's a dude, uh, I don't remember, Hugh Axton, I think is his name. Anyway, his last name is Axton, A-K-S-T-O-N. And I just thought that would be kind of cool, because it's like this subtle Ayn Rand nod, a little bit of a Russian connection, and it just sounds kind of Russian, with the K especially, A-K-S-T-O-N, Axton. You know, I could just not ever really bring up the name of the country necessarily. That's just the name of the city. It's just the, the airport in Axton. And then as like an alternate, just to have more than one, I was thinking Drago also, but Drago's a little on the nose. But uh, I was watching a little video about the Fantasy Star games. They were just old RPGs for the Sega and the Genesis. And the bad dude, the big bad in uh, Fantasy Star 1, his name was Lassic. And I did a little searching about him. And in the Japanese version, his name is Lashiek. L-A-S-H-I-E-C. And if you Google that, nothing comes up except Fantasy Star. It's just a Fantasy Star name. So I was like, and that's a pretty cool name, Lashiek. And then if I change the C to a K, then it's just my name. It's nothing. It's not even the fantasy star thing anymore. But it's like, I love those little, I like those nods when I'm looking for a, a name for something. I love to kind of base it on something else that I like. I like the idea that if I call this place Axton or Lashiek, you know, it's like, it's either a very subtle Ayn Rand reference or a not very subtle fantasy star reference. But those are just cool names. Those seem cool. And uh, yeah, there you go. It doesn't have to be Moscow. It doesn't have to be Russia. It can just be its own place. And it kind of frees it up. Makes it easier to write about the sort of uh, social philosophy of the place if it's not a real place. And less likely that some Russian guy would throw a fucking Molotov cocktail through my fucking window. All right, I think that's enough for today. I have to figure out where I am. <laughs> I think I saw a train track. I think I can get back to the train line from here. I'm definitely a little lost. I don't quite know where I am, but hey, whatever. It's only because I got to pee that that's even a problem. Fuck it, man. Just walk around all night. Why not? That's the point. It's the point of being in Japan is to just walk around. Soak it in. So let's end with that song, A Bell and a Whistle by Early Mart, one of the most gorgeous songs I've ever heard. So just imagine our, our two characters have had their bittersweet breakup, but not a breakup, you know? 
uh, let's fucking move on with this situation. Let's move this to a different venue. Let's see if we can survive not hanging out at the airport. Let's see if we can survive taking this relationship long distance. Airplane flying above the clouds. And then the credits start rolling now. For hospitals and homes Answering the phone And what if I Could take us both away from here Far away, my dear gotta record a tiny little bonus bit. Man, I love so much when I walk around and I suddenly see something I recognize. So I saw a train go by and I'm like, okay, that's a start. I'll go to the train line and then from there, you know, it's either left or right. One or the other is gonna get me where I'm gonna, where I gotta go. So I'll try one way and if it doesn't work, I'll go the other way. Hopefully I can find a 7-Eleven maybe and use the Wi-Fi and check a map starting to rain and stuff, but it's just a really nice night, just a really cool night. And I was walking along and I saw a gas station and you don't see a ton of gas stations. Those are pretty rare. And I realized, wait, that gas station, I recognized that sign and the underpass I was right by. I was like, wait a fucking second. I'm on the other side of a place that I've already been the very first day I got here when I couldn't find my Airbnb and it was just hot and I was sick and I was exhausted and I walked around for like two hours and couldn't figure out where to go just cause the, we're supposed to say there's a store on the right and then turn to the right and the direction said left both times. And I just spent the whole day or the whole, that whole like two hours looking for, well, maybe they meant this store. Maybe they meant this left walking all over the place. And I walked here, because this was one of the places. I'm like, well, maybe they meant this street. 
because I remember I walked past the gas station and nodded at the dude and then I got to this overpass and I was like, this is definitely wrong. This is definitely not right. Crossed over the overpass, went back down that way. And I just remember I was gonna say, because I was like, if I see that same guy outside the gas station, that I would just walk by and walked back, you know, even if I didn't know if he'd understand, but I was just gonna say like, you know, wrong way or whatever, but he wasn't out front, so I didn't see him. But, but I'm there, <laughs> I'm like, this is so great. Even that weird first day where I got lost and I'm wandering all around, that just paid off. Like I just saw it and I'm like, ding, 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 I fucking know where that is. I've been there before, I know how to get home from here fucking awesome. I fucking love when shit like that happens. And truly unexpected right now, because like I said, I was pretty lost. I really didn't know where I was. I mean, I certainly didn't expect to see that gas station. In fact, I didn't expect to see that gas station ever again in my fucking life, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it's uh, just, uh, I love it. I love that feeling. I love it. My friend Ray was telling me that uh, he hates that feeling. It's one of his least favorite things about traveling is just being lost and not knowing where he is and where he's going. And it's funny because I mean, I just couldn't feel more different. It's just how people are different, I guess. I mean, I don't love being lost. It hits a point where it gets tiresome. But in little doses, it feels so good. I love that feeling of just flowing through a city and just putting your hands, putting yourself in God's hands, you know? It's like, I'm sure it'll all work out. And then when it does, and when it connects like that, God, that's a good feeling. I feel like there's something in my brain that wants to be a cartographer, you know? Like I was saying about getting off a, a subway stop early and a subway stop later and connecting things and growing my knowledge of the footpaths of a city and how things work. It feels so good, I love that feeling. Okay, so there's my bonus bit, but now there's people all around, back in civilization. So I'll wrap it up. Thanks for listening, talk to you next time. Oh man, one more, just one more little additional thing. I know none of this means anything because you're just hearing it or whatever. I just had my mind blown, man. So that ravine thing I was walking by, if you could hear the rushing water and stuff, that's so fucked up. <laughs> it's like, it's another case where not having a proper phone is cool. You know, not being able to properly check a map and stuff. So that, uh, that gas station that on my first day I went to, on the way to the gas station is also a 7-Eleven. It was my first 7-Eleven I went to in Japan. It's when I realized uh, or found out that you can use Wi-Fi at 7-Elevens. There's this little uh, bridge you gotta cross to, uh, to get to that 7-Eleven that I didn't pay much attention to on the day because I was just, you know, I only went across it that first day when I was lost and I only paid attention to it in the sense of like, is this where I'm supposed to take this mythical left turn or whatever? But I was just looking at it as I went across it this time, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's the ravine. That's the same ravine I was walking along all evening. And then I realized, wait a second, I walked down this exact stretch toward the end of that podcast when I was just saying, like, fucking, when I started talking about fucking uh, not calling the place Russia, and, <laughs> you know, calling it by a, a made-up name. Because I, I, I was like, oh, I recognize this part of it where there's these little uh, observation deck sort of things and this little uh, bulletin board. I'm like, I walked right by it. That is right by my Airbnb. 
that's like fucking a block and a half away. I was right by my Airbnb, but I never realized that 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 ravine connects up and goes right by here. So I just kept walking. I deliberately walked all far away (laughs) from where I was supposed to go. That's so fucked up. Like, yeah, I just got back. Actually, this happened to me the other day. I was at the Meiji Shrine, and I took an exit and just like, you know, it's like uh, you got to go through these woods to get to this shrine. So I took this exit that I thought was going to point me a certain way and like, oh, this will lead me to that park that connects or that's next to the shrine. But it kind of curved while I was in the woods without me realizing. So it flung me off in the wrong direction. And I walked around for fucking an hour and was all lost, maybe 40 minutes. Finally uh, connected to some Wi-Fi, got a map, figured out where I was. And when I went back to where I was supposed to be. Like, I ended up exactly back where I started. Like, that whole walk was just pointless and took me in a loop. That same thing happened today. I guess that's just that's just part of the game, man. But it's so neat, you know? It's like I just never realized, like, my Airbnb's right around the corner from here. And there's the ravine. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> I didn't know they even connected. I don't know. It's just cool. All right, that's enough rambling. Again, thank you. I'll talk to you later.